0: Everyone, it's me, Heklina. We are back. I know it has been a long time. But what can I say, I have been living my life and getting back to a sense of abnormalcy and trying to make some coins after the pandemic. So I've had very little time uh, for the podcast, but I have a very special guest today. And of course, I had to uh, clear my schedule for this. I've been traveling a lot, uh, doing shows. I just came back from San Francisco last week doing a bunch of uh, early Pride gigs and If you are listening to this and you live in Palm Springs, Boise, Seattle or Portland, uh, I'm going on tour with the Golden Girls uh, in July. So you can go to thegoldengirlslive.com for information about that. And uh, you can go to my Facebook or Instagram at Hecklina just to find out what's going on with me in general. Now I want to introduce today's guest star. This is somebody, uh, back before I was even doing drag, I used to go see drag shows at a long gone venue in San Francisco called Josie's Cabaret and Juice Joint. And I was so intrigued when I saw a poster for this artist, I I had to go see uh, their show. And I was so blown away with it. I was so sort of blown away by the show, by how meticulously rehearsed and uh performed it was. And in a time when it seems like every drag show is kind of the same, I felt like back then this was an act that was pretty singular and unique. Um, I'm talking about Lipsinka, the artist, uh, and we are joined today by Lipsinka's alter ego, John Epperson, and I'm gonna ask John lots of questions about his past and his present. I'm really honored. This is somebody who has uh, worked off-Broadway and he's worked in film. He's been a frequent performer at uh, Wake Stock, the Pyramid Club, Studio Theater. Uh, he uh, played the Wicked Stepmother in New York City Opera's Revival of Roger and Hammerstein Cinderella. Um, he's been in a, another gay movie, and if I'm not mistaken, a movie called Far From Heaven, although I might be wrong. Anyway, please welcome the legendary John Epperson. Hello, John.
1: Hello, Helena. Thank you for having me. Thank I you. Wish- I wish I had been in Far From Heaven. Okay, then 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 it was then I was just mistaken then. Okay,
0: I do remember you in uh, another gay movie. And weren't you also in, you were in another movie, weren't you? Oh, Black Swan. That's correct. I play the rehearsal pianist in Black Swan. That's right, that's right. Well, uh, so I was really, really blown away back in the day uh, from watching your shows uh, at Josie's Cabaret and Juice Joint. And then... Am I correct in this? Uh, First of all, we'll get to what what created Lipsynca, but you workshopped your shows in San Francisco before you took them to New York City. Is that
1: correct? Yes, I think that is correct. I'm I'm going through my memory bank. Uh, (laughs) I think, yeah, I did. I did all of them there before I did them anywhere else and they and there was one called Lipsinka must be destroyed that was only there i never did it anywhere after and that was that at at Josie's was that Josie's
0: yes okay and um let's get let's go into the backstory of Lipsinka so i read on your wikipedia page that uh you were influenced by Dolores Gray and and i watched a few videos of Dolores Gray and i was i saw i saw Lipsinka there but i also I think Lipsinka was also kind of a supermodel, wasn't she?
1: Well, when I got to New York, there was uh, a big exhibition of Richard Avedon photographs at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And uh, before I arrived in New York, and this was 1978, I had seen the book that went along with that exhibition And I was fascinated by the photographs in the book. And then I got to see the actual show when I arrived. And I was very taken with the models in the book. And uh, some of them had one, they were just one name wonders like Cher or Madonna. For instance, there was Dovima. Uh Uh-huh. And Baruchpa. Yeah, yeah. And then I started hearing about A woman who had been a model and had become an agent And her name was Wilhelmina And I thought when I decided to create Lipsinka That she should have a one name like that Mm -hmm. But when I saw Dolores Gray It was at a theater here in New York Had at one time been a regular neighborhood movie theater But by the time I got to New York It was a revival house called the Regency on Broadway, just north of Lincoln Center. And I went there a lot because this was before cable and really almost almost before cable and almost before home video. So you had to go out to see movies. Yes. And I went to see what I thought was a Gene Kelly, Sid Charisse movie. But by the time I left the theater, it was to me a Dolores Gray movie. It was the first time I had seen her the movie's called it's always fair weather and she came on with this fantastic voice and this big style and i thought to myself well there are uh female impersonators from that was a that was the term at the time there are female impersonators who who A lot of them were celebrity impersonators. They were impersonating Cher or Bette Midler or Barbara Streisand or Liza Minnelli. And I thought, I'm going to impersonate someone that people aren't so familiar with. I'm going to impersonate this woman.
0: And you also came up with your own character, too. I mean, Lipsynka was, oh yes, a mixture of Dolores Gray and supermodels, but also... I remember you also uh, would use clips from so many different sources. And I I know one of your favorite voices that you used was Barbara Felden
1: from Get Smart. Well, when I used Barbara Felden, I actually came up with material and had her record it. Oh, I didn't know that. That's amazing. Oh yeah, I brought her into a recording studio. You loved her voice. And I love her voice. And the way that happened was I was doing a show in 1992 uh, that used a recording that Joan Collins had made where she talked about how to eat properly and, and, uh, and good things about sex. And it was like a lifestyle recording. And then we did it. A year later, and it was decided to re-record it, rewrite it, and re-record it with our own person. And somebody suggested Barbara Feldon. At the time, she was doing a lot of voiceover work on television and commercials
0: for cat food. Didn't she do like Nine Lives or Fancy Feast or oh, something?
1: She probably oh. did. She just she did quite a bit. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I I guess I I guess I knew her commercial agent. And so we were able to get to her. And then she recorded stuff for a show I did in San Francisco first, a show called As I Lay Lip Syncing. And then she recorded some stuff for Lip Syncing Must Be Destroyed. But when I said that that I was going to impersonate Dolores Gray, I didn't literally mean impersonate her, but I just wanted to take the things I loved about her and bring her, bring those things into Lip sync, like her big gestures and her sense of humor. Uh, I, yeah, I didn't really impersonate anyone. Yes. I mean, like,
0: like I said, it was a very singular, uh, a singular act. You know, like I've seen so many acts that are kind of like, oh, kind of the same thing. Now, one thing that I, I remember I interviewed you, I interviewed you a long time ago. And one thing that did come become clear, uh, being so meticulous and having to rehearse so much, uh, it doesn't give you a whole lot of time to socialize and hang out with the other girls. Like you rehearse so much for this and, and it takes so much work putting these voice clips together that you, you said sometimes the process could be very grueling. Um, I don't know if you remember telling me that, but I I that kind of stuck with me. Do you do you drive do you feel like you drive yourself to perfection?
1: Yes, I do. I have mm-hmm. the same birthday as Barbara Streisand. <laughs> okay. Whether Enough that's said. a good whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. Uh-huh. But uh I don't mind rehearsing. Uh, but I do want it to be right. I do want it to be good. Mm-hmm. But, you know, making the recording is a grueling process because you have to research it. You have to upload all the material. And I don't do it myself. I have to go to an audio engineer who does that. And I have to sit with him when we do the editing. And the editing is a long process. And then I have to memorize it. And then I have to choreograph it. And so it takes, it doesn't just happen overnight. It takes uh, quite a while to pull a show like that together.
0: That's what I mean. And and uh, it also can be quite difficult to find the right venue that has the good sound, that has the good lighting, that has the proper setup for you. So, um, I mean, it is a difficult act, I'm sure, to maintain and perform, but it is so, I, I remember being blown away, that was actually a couple of years before I began doing drag, and so I found it very inspirational.
1: Well, I didn't know what uh, Josie's was going to have in terms of lights and sound, mm-hmm. but fortunately they had enough to do that first show, and the show's that show was successful, and then each show got more elaborate. And Josie's would actually close for several days so that we could put up the show and rehearse it and teach it to the lights and sound people. Right. They would close not uh, not the restaurant front part, but they would close the showroom itself. And I w- didn't know that the show was going to be so successful in San Francisco. I wanted to perform there very badly. And I must say that before I performed at Josie's, I performed at a big club. I think it was called a universe. Does that sound familiar? Club universe. Yes. And the promoter was a guy named Greg. Greg Taylor. Greg Taylor. Uh Uh-huh. So it was Greg Taylor who had the idea to bring Lipsinka to San Francisco. Oh, wow, okay. I have to, I have to give him credit. Wow, not, that's a name I've not heard in a long time. Uh, and I didn't expect there to be such a great response. But then after there was such a wonderful response, I realized it must have been because I had done my first off-broadway show in New York, for a year and I had gotten some national publicity and I guess word of mouth had spread and so to Le Monde to San Francisco came to the universe that one performance at universe and this fellow named Donald Montwill was in the crowd and he was one of the owners of Josie's and he was the person who booked the talent and somebody told me I should go and introduce myself to this guy Donald Montwell, who's opening a club on Sixteenth Street, and so I thought, okay, why not? And so I walked over there, and they were laying in the concrete for the floor in Josie's at that point, and he said, "I want to book you. I I saw your show; it was great. I want to book you here." And so I was one of the first people to perform at Josie's, and Donald worked. Uh, also, as a, the publicist for Josie's, and he's the one who sent out the press releases, and he got uh, now can I remember this man's name? He was a critic at the San Francisco Chronicle when when it was still the San Francisco Chronicle, and 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 newspapers were still powerful. Can right can't remember that man's name, but he gave it a great review. He said, a cross between Lucille Ball and an angry flamingo. Uh-huh. And they put a picture. I think they took their own picture. They put the picture. And uh, Donald knew the newspaper was coming out. And he knew that if you went to a certain place downtown, you could get a copy in advance at midnight the night before. And we went there and we got it. And... And, and we were home free for, for years. And then the, one of the reasons Josie's began to fall apart is because Donald died. He died of AIDS. And uh, when I did Lipsynka Must Be Destroyed in 96, he was still alive. He wasn't still working, but his effect was still there. And then when I went back A year later, in 97, to do a show that at that time was called Lip Sync's Greatest Hits. Things had changed. Donald had died. And the audience was not as big as it had been, except on the weekends. Up until then, I had sold out houses on a Tuesday night. I remember, yeah. But something was wrong. Mm -hmm. And part of it was that Donald was, had died. And I remember the night that Ellen came out on her sitcom. I had eight people in the audience, Heclina. Oh my God. And I I think that was a Wednesday night. And I realized, oh, things are changing. Uh Now there's so much for the gay audience to be distracted by.
0: Right. Well, at least then you didn't have, you, you didn't have to compete back then with RuPaul's Drag Race girls. But yes, there was all of a
1: sudden a lot going on. And also, I think people were staying at home because there was a new gadget called America Online.
0: Yes, 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 yes. I mean, the internet has ruined in in a way. It's been in a way, it's been great, but in another way, it ruined nightlife because. The reason why men went out was to get laid and now they don't have to, they can stay at home and they don't have to go to the theater or the movie, they have Netflix and all that stuff. But that's but that's another story. Um, can you tell me, now a lot of successful drag queens, I've been through this, Yes, I'm calling myself a successful drag queen, and I know Lady Bunny's been through it and Peaches, but it was a, it was an identity crisis. Do you feel like you went through an identity crisis where all people wanted from you was lip Synca and you, you, like John Epperson, was
1: kind of getting lost in that character. Well, that may still be true. I don't. I never thought of it as a crisis, but mm-hmm. I, I have done some things as John Epperson. Mm -hmm. But I would imagine still to this day that the public would prefer the other. (laughs) Yes, yes. But uh, I'm okay with myself. Uh, But about Bunny, Bunny doesn't seem to want people to know what she looks like.
0: No, uh, I know.
1: Out of drag
0: no she shows up to the gig in drag and she leaves in drag (laughs) absolutely um tell me about your your relationship with lady bunny you've been you yeah last time i saw you actually in person was backstage at Wigstock in new york city uh, the one that neil patrick harris uh was involved in and uh
1: tell me about your long friendship uh, with bunny I actually have on videotape the moment that Bunny and I met. Mm -hmm. I was going to the Pyramid Club maybe to perform for the first time there ever. And Bunny was sitting out front on a stool. I don't know if she was the door person or if she was just sitting there because she wanted to. But she was there. And a friend of mine followed me out of the cab with my video camera. And as we walked up and Bunny saw the camera, she said, oh, I have one of those. And I thought, is she joking or not? And years later, I reminded her. And I said, did you really have a video camera? And she said, no, I was kidding. I didn't have anything at that point. They hadn't. She and RuPaul and LaHoma hadn't been in New York for that long, and uh, Bunny didn't have her own place, which she's had
0: now for years. Another close friend of yours, if I'm, if I can be so um, forward, and 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 uh, proclaim it, is uh, Charles Bush. So you you appeared in one of his productions, Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, and uh, you guys have performed together. I remember. There was an HBO special or something where you were performing together with him. Um, Tell me about your relationship with Charles.
1: Well, um, and just to set the record straight, I was not in Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, but my first off-Broadway show, for the first six weeks that it ran, was a tandem production with Vampire Lesbians of Sodom. Oh, I see. Meaning it was the late show. Okay. And uh, I did audition for Vampire Lesbians of Sodom when he left the show, but they got David Drake. David Drake, at that time, the two of them sort of looked alike, and David Drake was the same size. They didn't have to make any new costumes for David. And I'm a lot taller than Charles, so that wouldn't have worked. But I wasn't very good at the audition anyway. And The reason he... Uh, asked me to audition was because he had seen a show that I wrote and was in called Dial M for Model, which was n- not a lip sync a show. It was a show that I wrote the book Music and Lyrics for, and uh, it was more like a traditional musical. And he came to see that. We did it at the Pyramid Club They actually did have theater at the Pyramid Club sometimes. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. I just thought they had the
0: drag shows, like with Flotilla and Misunderstood and stuff.
1: Um, Yeah, they did uh, mm -hmm. earlier evening theater occasionally. I also wrote a show that was produced there a year before Dial-In for Model. The earlier show was called Ballet of the Dolls. That was a parody of Valley of the Dolls and the Ballet World, which I was very much a part of then. Did you play Helen Lawson? (laughs) No, (laughs) I actually played the piano offstage for everybody else.
0: Oh, okay. I can totally see you as Susan Hayward too.
1: Well, I love that part. I would like to play that part, Mm -hmm. but I changed all the names anyway. She was called, she wasn't called uh, Helen Lawson. She was called Susan Wayward. (laughs) <laughs> okay, <laughs> I like that. But I did appear briefly in a cameo appearance as Jonathan the Suzanne in that show. A, a riff on Jacqueline and Suzanne, right?
0: weren't you also in a play with Varla Jean Berman?
1: Yeah, in nineteen ninety seven, and again in ninety eight. Uh, we did a show called Lipsinka is Harriet Craig. Harriet Craig is a Joan Crawford movie.
0: Oh, I've seen that, yes.
1: And Varla played Harriet's put-upon cousin, Claire. And there's a funny story about uh, Lipsinka's Harriet Craig. So Varla, she was in every performance but one. She got a job somewhere else, and uh, told us that she wanted to take it. It was a good money job and, and everybody said fine and we'll find someone to replace you for that one night. And so we asked Flotilla to play Varla's part. And there was a little bit of singing that Varla had to do in the show and some of it was from the it was uh, from the song a boy like that from west side story mm-hmm. a boy like that who kill your brother forget right. that boy and find another and so flotilla came to my apartment and i was teaching flotilla the song and and there were about three words that she got wrong and they were small words just prepositions but here's what flotilla didn't know the performance that Varla was going to miss and Flotilla was going to do was going to be attended by Stephen Sondheim. Oh, no. Who, of course, is famously the lyricist for West Side Story. Right, right. So I wanted Flotilla to get every word right, but we, the director and I didn't want to tell anybody that he was coming because we didn't want, we didn't want his presence to make them nervous. Right, right. So I was kept pressuring Flotilla, you've got to get these words right. But I didn't tell her why.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And And did she? And did she get them right?
1: She got the words right. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, he was spotted at the show. And then they all knew. And Flotilla said, now I understand why you were so particular about getting every word just right. Oh, wow. Wow. And Varla, she missed her opportunity to perform for Stephen Steinheim. and she might be doing Sweeney Todd on Broadway right now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Varla, of course, as we know, is another workaholic. She's always working. Um, and uh, so I know that, you know, she's a perfectionist, too. Um, can we talk a little bit? Like, this is going way, way back. So I recently I recently was in Mississippi, and... Um, You were born in Mississippi. What was it like for a clever gay young boy to grow up in Mississippi?
1: Well, before I answer you, may I ask you why you were in Mississippi?
0: Well, I was going on a trip through the South. I was visiting friends in New Orleans, and then I was driving down to, um, to, uh, Tampa, Florida. And then we stopped off in Boxee on the way. And, uh. I did. We didn't stay very long in Mississippi. Uh-huh. Yeah.
1: Well, the Gulf Coast of Mississippi is very unlike the rest of Mississippi. Uh-huh. The Gulf Coast has always been a little more open, shall we say, than the mm-hmm. rest. Right. Partly because of its close proximity to New Orleans and partly because being on the Gulf Coast line, it's always had lots of different other kinds of people, not just the usual kind of people you might see in Mississippi. Right. You know, I think they used to have strip joints on the Gulf Coast. In fact, the first time I ever realized that women had pubic hair was on, on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi when I happened to see a nudie magazine that was not Playboy. Because at Playboy, the girls used to be shaved and airbrushed, you know, Right, But uh, on a band trip, we somehow got our hands on a nudie magazine that was a lot lower level than Playboy. And that's (laughs) when I first saw female (laughs) pubic hair. I actually thought women didn't have pubic hair. That's how how sheltered I was. (laughs) So the place where I grew up was very different uh, than that. And it was not easy. Uh, I was a sissy. I was effeminate. I liked to play the piano. I liked to play with dolls. And my sisters teased me and called me a sissy. I think my mother put a stop to that. But it wasn't really terrible until I got to the seventh grade, junior high school, because, of course, Everyone else, just like me, was going through pu- puberty, and you know how kids are when they're adolescents. They can oh very, yes, they can be very cruel and very horny and confused about that. Exactly. You know? Yes, and of course, I I have it has occurred to me that one of the reasons Lip Synca exists is because. Uh, I was unconsciously rebelling against that repression. And you couldn't wait to get out of there, right? Well, certainly by the time I was a senior in college, I was very eager to leave. Mm -hmm. And it was my summer before college when I made my very first trip to New York. And I had never been on an airplane before, had never been north of the Mason-Dixon line before. Oh, wow. But what had happened was that uh, I started noticing around 1969 or 70 these ads in the news in the Jackson newspaper, which we got in the small town where I grew up, 30 miles south of there. It's a town called Hazelhurst. Uh huh. I started noticing in the newspaper that there were advertisements for Broadway musicals that came through town. And so I told my mother, I said, don't you think we should go see one of these shows sometime? And she liked to be entertained. She liked to get out. And so we went to see a play, a touring play called Plaza Suite by Neil Simon. huh. My mother kind of knew the name Neil Simon. So that was okay to go and see. And so that was my first professional theater event that I ever experienced. And by the way, the two actors in it were Betty Garrett and Larry Parks, who were a married couple. I didn't know then that they had both had big movie careers that were ended because they were blacklisted during the whole McCarthy thing.
0: Oh, didn't Betty Garrett play the landlady and Laverne and Shirley? Is that who... She could have. What was she in? She was in On the Town. What What movies
1: was she in? She was in On the Town. Yes, yeah, she was in On the Town. A bunch of movies at MGM. That's her. Then that was the one that was. Uh, she was
0: in *Laverne and Shirley*. I remember. So I guess she went on there after she, after all the dust settled
1: from the communist thing. She was also, I think, on *All in the Family*. That's right. Yes. And her, this was before All in the Family when the two of them were touring Plaza Suite. And he had been in a movie called The Jolson Story. I think he got an Oscar nomination playing Al Jolson. But I did I had no idea who the two of them were. And certainly didn't know anything about their blacklist history. Mm-hmm. Just to bring it all around to Donald Trump since. Donald Trump's mentor and lawyer, Roy Cohn, was the right hand of Joseph McCarthy, who was blacklisting these people. Right. Just to bring it up to modern times.
0: hmm. Yeah. And
1: then we saw Company, the Sondheim show, and we saw Promises, Promises, and we saw Applause with Pia was an applause. Not Lauren
0: Bacall. You didn't see the Lauren Bacall one.
1: No, Lauren Bacall didn't do the tour. We saw, we saw an actress named Patrice Munsell, who had been an opera singer. Okay. We saw, saw No No Nanette with oh, Evelyn wow. Key, with Evelyn Keys, who played Scarlett O'Hara's one of Scarlett O'Hara's sister in Gone with the Wind. Uh-huh. So Then I went off to college and then I was there in the town. I was I went to school in Jackson. So I went to see Broadway musicals when they came through without my mother. I went on my own. And in 75, I said to my mother, well, I want to go to see New York City where these shows come from. And she said, well, you're not going without me. So we came to New York in the summer of 75 she had never been north of the mason dixon line or on an airplane just like me and we saw we had tickets to see um gwen verdon and Cheetah rivera in chicago the show chicago and uh when we arrived my mother picked up a newspaper the new york times and there was an announcement that said Gwen Verdon is going to be out of the show Chicago for three weeks and she will be replaced by Liza Minnelli.
0: Oh, wow.
1: And that's who I saw play Roxy Hart on Broadway in the summer of 75. And when we left the theater, Andy Warhol was standing on the sidewalk. He had been to the show too. And that's when I realized, oh yeah, this is where I belong. I have to move to New York City. Yes, absolutely. And that's when I really knew I had to get out. And
0: what did your mother think about that?
1: Well, there wasn't much she could do about it. She, she, I believe, saw it was inevitable after that trip. And my mother encouraged me to study piano. I got into college because of my piano ability. I got a scholarship based on that. And so that's what I was trained to do. And so where am I going to go and actually make a living doing that? It's not going to happen in Jackson. (laughs) Exactly. Unless you're going to teach, it was inevitable that I would go somewhere. You needed to shine. I needed to shine very badly. Mm -hmm. Even even when I got to New York, and I did get a job as a rehearsal pianist at... um, american ballet theater but you don't shine there as a rehearsal pianist because that job has a very low ceiling and you're just the person in the corner making it everyone else being able to shine and so i said after a while i've got to do my own thing i've got to be I've got to have a little rock star in my own life. And it was about, I had done that job for two years when I came up with the name and the concept of Synca.
0: And did you teach yourself how to do drag, how to do makeup? Did you have uh, an idea in mind for the dresses, the hairstyles, all that stuff?
1: Well, I still don't think I do makeup very well, but Mm. I did i had a makeup artist friend who gave me some tips, but I I wasn't doing it a lot myself, trial by error, trial and error. And I knew that that big circular skirt look was good for me somehow. Hair is still a mystery to me. Someone else has to do it. Yeah, it's
0: difficult. That can be difficult. But you definitely knew fashion. I mean, I, I saw you wore... Uh, you wear hostess skirts and stuff like that, things that people don't even know about, you know? <laughs> so you definitely, that was, you know, when's the last time you saw anybody wear a hostess skirt?
1: Well, I think a lot of my knowledge about fashion probably comes from my knowledge about movies. Yeah. Just looking at movies.
0: hmm Yes, there is a touch of that old Hollywood glamour to Lipsinka and her drag. Now, t- tell me about drag. So you've been quoted saying, that you don't like the term drag queen because it seems amateurish and you'd rather be called a drag
1: artist or an actor. Is that true? Yes. But there are other reasons that I don't like the term drag queen. When I was coming of age, that was considered a derogatory term. Right. It was a put down and the word queen was a put down amongst gay men and there's a movie, a very good movie from 1977 called Outrageous. Have you ever seen it with Craig? No,
0: no. I heard about it.
1: Well, you can see it on YouTube. It's up, it's, if it's still there, it's uploaded pretty nicely on YouTube. And it's free, if I'm still correct about that. Yes. Last time I checked anyway. But there's at one point when he's, and he's in a, as Craig Russell was a celebrity impersonator, and he plays a celebrity impersonator in the movie. It's a very good movie. It's very cheaply made, but very good. And he, he performs one night at a club, and then we see him the next morning with the guy who's come home with him, a very good-looking, blonde-haired guy, it's a typical 70s-looking guy with the mustache. And then we realize, oh, the guy is a hooker and he wants to be paid. And Craig Russell obviously has expected that, but was hoping it wouldn't happen, that the guy really would like him. So he pays the guy and the guy leaves. And Craig Russell says to his female roommate, do you know what it's like for a really good looking guy to look at you? And all he sees is drag queen. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) <laughs> yes, <laughs> and he says it that way, and so that's that's a that's a good example of why, at the time, drag queen was a put down. Fortunately, I think that's changed. There are lots of drag performers who have boyfriends now. Well, yeah, it's much more open now.
0: But I have had the experience myself of dating a guy, and he or or going on a date with a guy and he finds out I'm a drag queen and he and that's it you know it is kind of uh, there are a lot of people who it's a threat to their own masculinity uh for some reason but um but I started doing drag uh when i think there was a renaissance of uh of drag in the mid 90s that's when i began and the term drag queen was was okay at that point i think even the even the term tranny was okay you know <laughs> So,
1: well, heck, Lena, how long ago was that, that the guy ended that relationship?
0: Uh, that was um, like 95. And I also remember bringing a guy home and he came into my bedroom and he saw photos of me in drag and he asked, he asked me if that was me. And I said, yes. And he ran out of the house. He didn't just walk and he, and he didn't say anything to me. He just turned and ran out of the house. So I was like, okay, I mean, that's just the price of, uh, but that's the price of doing drag, I thought back then. But, uh, but I do know lots of people who, the, it, the attitudes have changed. And I think men aren't so threatened by that feminine side anymore. Um, of course, yeah, I'm, ge- yeah I'm, I'm kind of generalizing, but yes.
1: If they're an evolved person, they they don't. Seemed to have a problem with it. I did have a relationship with uh, an ex-Marine who, when he, had, when he was a Marine in San Diego, he was screwing women. Mm-hmm. And then he realized later on that he was gay when I met him. And uh, he lived on Long Island, and he saw a picture of me in the Long Island newspaper in drag, and, along with a picture of me out of drag. And he wasn't put off by it at all. That's how he found out.
0: Yeah. Well, for a lot of guys, it's a big turn on. And I found that out through doing drag. All of a sudden, it's interesting that some straight guys will pay a lot of attention to you the minute you put on a dress and wig, you know.
1: Well, this guy really was no, quote, no longer straight, unquote, but he had. Mm -hmm. And then I met another guy in 2004 who was. Who also, come to think of it, had thought at one time that he was straight. And he knew about it and he had no problem with it. Mm-hmm. But you said it's a threat to their masculinity. I think, Heclina, it may also, that dragophobia may also be tied into internalized homophobia.
0: Yes. And well, yes, it's a threat to their, because they have this veneer of masculinity that they put on, which is a front. And um, and it's a threat to that, you know.
1: But th- there are some gay men who, whether they realize it or not, don't like themselves because they are gay.
0: Sure. I think that's very common, too.
1: And so yeah. it can be, I think, drag phobia can be a relative of that.
0: hmm No, for sure. And that's also what uh, what I think... Um, Hate against gays is too. It's internalized homophobia. If a straight guy feels like a gay guy is coming on to him and he's not completely sure with uh, with uh, about his sexuality, then he can be triggered. You know, it's just the ones who are sure about themselves and comfortable in their own skin that it doesn't seem to bother.
1: Right. Yeah. Drag, Drag artists I do see as more of a compliment. And. Did you ever see a movie made by Joel Schumacher called Flawless?
0: I did. I did. Jackie Beat was in that and Joey Arias.
1: Yeah. Yes. So I, I was called in to meet Joel Schumacher and I was told it was not an audition. Well, I guess that's true because I wasn't asked to speak any lines. But when I got there to meet Joel Schumacher the casting director was there in the meeting and so I, I felt it was uh, an audition even though I didn't speak any lines but he and I were chatting and somehow the, the same thing that you asked me about the word the term drag queen came up and I told him that I didn't like the term and he asked me why and I told him all the reasons like I've told you and He said, well, what do you like? And I said, well, drag star or drag artist or drag entertainer. And he, I think he took what I said and used it in the script. Oh, yeah. Because at one point, Philip Seymour Hoffman says to Robert De Niro uh, that he's a drag artist and then later on, he's falling down drunk and says to Robert De Niro, I told you that I'm an artist. Well, I'm not. I can't remember all the dialogue now. I hated that movie so much. <laughs> Why? It, well, I think it's a it's a terrible movie for so many reasons. The whole thing about the drugs and the pillow
0: I don't remember the movie that well. I just remember kind of it was kind of a blur. Of course, no gay movie ever seemed real to me the way
1: that they presented us. So, well, the the fact that the Philip Seymour Hoffman character is so he's an addict and he's miserable and all of that just seemed terribly negative to me. But the whole, that stuff about the drugs and the pillow is a direct steal from an Audrey Hepburn movie called wait until dark. Mm-hmm. And the movie's very violent and you've got the two stories, the drugs and the pillow and the story of the relationship between these two people who live in the same building. Mm-hmm. I just thought the movie was a mess. Right. And if, if uh, Joel Schumacher had offered me the part, I would have had a really hard time making up my mind whether I wanted to, you know, I would have read the script and I would have realized, oh my God, what a terrible script this is. <laughs> and then to make it all worse, when the movie came out, Schumacher gave an interview to the advocate and they asked him, why didn't you pass a drag performer who's known for being a drag performer in the role. And he said, well, I didn't have time to teach Charles Bush or Lipsinka how to act for the camera. And that just added insult to injury, I thought. Right. And now he's dead.
0: And he made that horrible Batman movie, so it's okay.
1: He was a nice guy, but I, Mm -hmm. I hated that movie this might be a good
0: time to bring up a a urban legend that I heard about you. Uh, You appeared in, you know, I I, I saw you, uh, I think it was like Sandra Bernhardt After Dark or something like that. Or no, it was Joan Rivers or I think it was a Joan. But I've seen you in lots of things. And I saw you, of course, in the Too Funky video, the George Michael video. And the story goes that it was a very arduous shoot. It took a long time to shoot this video. At one point, you were very exhausted and you turned to Linda Evangelista and you said, boy, this video is really exhausting, isn't it? And she turned to you and said, you're lucky to even be here and walked away. Is this true?
1: I don't think so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, uh, it's, a,
0: it's a great story. <laughs>
1: there, there, there are some other legends around that, the making of that. And I will write about it someday. But what I do remember saying to her, well, it was not a long shoot. It was three days. Mm -hmm. But they were very long days. And what happened was I had to put on very long nails and they had to last three days. So they were very thick. And they were then painted red, and they limited my life because I couldn't even pull up the pantyhose myself, you know, the nails were so long, and they put the makeup on me, they put everything on all of us, and the very first on the first day, and I and a lot of other people just sat around all day, right not doing anything and that was frustrating. And then they, after a long day, and it was not union, you know, so a long day, they sent all of us back to the hotel, slept hardly at all because we had to be back early the next day to work, hopefully, the second day. And uh, the the second day, the same thing happened. Put on the makeup and sat around and sat around and sat around. And she and I shared the same makeup artist, a guy who's dead now named Joe McDevitt. And she said she could tell I was unhappy about having to just sit around and wait and not be used. And she asked me what was wrong and I told her and she said, well, that's just the way these things go. So I don't remember her adding to that. You're lucky to be here.
0: Well, I thought that was that was such a brilliantly uh, catty uh, thing to say. It made for a good story.
1: Well, what happened? The rest of the story is that. So the entire second day, just like the first, I sat around, full makeup, like other people, and we never got on camera. And then the third day, I left the hotel, the car was waiting for us, I got in the car, and there was only one other person in the car. And the two, previous two days, the car had been packed, and I said, where is everybody? And the other person who was in the car, who was a model, she said, well, everybody else has gone ahead. And have you heard about what's happened? And I said, no, what? And she said, well, there's been a kind of mutiny and the film has been taken away from Terry.
0: A little bit of backstory for, uh, for the listeners about who Terry Mugler was. Well, he was a famous fashion designer and he also happened to be the director of this video for George Michael.
1: Correct. Um, yes. And I got there and there were, definitely was an unhappy feeling in the air. And Mugler appeared and he said a few words and then he was gone. And uh, the makeup was put on me just as it had been the first two days. And George Michael was now the director because Mugler was out of the picture. All of us who had been sitting around for two days not doing anything under the directorship of George Michael. It's hard to believe both of them are now dead. Right. That's quite it, crazy. It was under the directorship of George Michael that I and all the others who for the first two days sat around twiddling our thumbs that we actually filmed something. So I was grateful that the mood changed and things got done the third day and i actually got to be on camera since i i was so f- fearful that i had flown all the way there and had gone through this and i never would even end up in the thing
0: that's what happened to me with wigstock
1: wigstock the movie well the
0: wigstock that just happened remember the one that i the last time i saw you you didn't get to go on i i went to get i went to go on but i ended up on the cutting room floor when they put the oh. thing out
1: yeah Oh, oh, I see. Well, so did I, Heflina. And and when Neil Patrick Harris called me to ask me to be in it, I said, you know, I'm never going to make the cut of this movie. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, I was proven right. Well, I mean, there was a lot of it. It
0: was a big expense on their part, flying me out, flying peaches out, blah, blah, blah. Anyway. Okay. We're almost at the end of the podcast. And um, I've been going off my script, but this is the time for you, John, to uh, kind of open up and tell us anything you want to tell about yourself. What are your projects you have coming up?
1: Very shortly, a magazine called Candy Transversal Magazine, issue number 14, is going to be coming out. And it has multiple covers, but one of the covers is Lip All new photographs in this spread and and on the cover, plus a lot of old photographs from my own archives and other photographers' archives. That's coming out, you can pre-order it now. I am getting ready to, I mean, I can't really believe this is gonna happen. I'm afraid to even talk about it until it's in the can, but I have been having meetings with Chloe Sevigny about making a lip sync of film that she will direct. Oh wow. It's gonna be produced by a theater, a nonprofit theater company here in New York called The New Group. And I am talking to a producer about doing a live lip Synca show here in New York before the year is out because this year, twenty twenty-two, is the fortieth anniversary of the creation of Lipsynca. Oh wow. And that's what the magazine is about also. The magazine also includes an interview that I do with Simon Doonan. He interviews me. This is all the, the big 40th anniversary spread in the magazine. Wow. So that's what I have going on.
0: All right. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Am I right that people can find out what's going on uh, with you at com?
1: Well the best thing to do is go to lipsinka.com and then join my social media that are linked onto it. And you
0: can find uh John at uh at, at lipsinka on Instagram and Twitter. Are Correct. you on
1: are you on Facebook at all? And I have two Facebook pages, one called lipsinka and one called lipsinka von Rasputina. Okay. <laughs> and I and I have a YouTube, but it's that, all on the website Lipsinka.com. You have to spell it correctly, of course. L y p s i n k a dot com.
0: It's more European that way. L y p s i n k a. Check Lipsinka out, so you can you can find out what's going on with Lipsinka and John Epperson. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Heclina. If you love us, show it. Tell anybody you can about the podcast Drag Time with Heclina, You can give us a tip. Just find Drag Time on Venmo or Cash App. All the money goes to Mark to keep the podcast going. Thank you to all of our listeners and a huge thank you to John Epperson for joining us today. Thank
1: you. Thank you so much, Heclina and Mark. Thank you.